Hello. <laughs> Welcome uh, to Encounter Church. I like stupid humor, and so that uh, video just makes me laugh every time I see it. Um, it's probably completely inappropriate to do that if there were actual real bears in the woods, but it's so stinking funny. So um, today we're going to kick off a new series we're excited about this month uh, called Scared to Death. And uh, over the course of this month, just kind of give you a little bit of a backdrop and a frame of reference, uh, we're going to kind of be working through uh, those difficult, challenging moments of life. And it's going to be an ever-increasing kind of way. Uh, it'll be light the first few weeks, and then we'll move into kind of dealing and navigating the heavier topics uh, towards the end. I want to start with uh, kind of a random story from history that maybe you heard about or maybe you've never heard about. It's called The Great Stink of 1858. Um, the Great Stink of 1858 may win you something on Jeopardy someday from now, and I just would ask that you do a little bit of sharing of the prophet. Because um, uh, the River Thames in London around the early 1800s uh, became part of the sewage system for the city. Uh, because it was a, a river that flowed into the ocean, the general thought at the time was that we can dump our sewage and our trash and our waste, and it'll eventually flow into the ocean, and that'll be it. We won't have to deal with it anymore. That'll be a great way to kind of navigate this sewage problem we have, because London at the time was kind of a, an early global city. It was thriving metropolis, a ton of people lived there, and sewage was a real issue. Well, around the mid-1800s, people started to kind of voice some concerns, like there may be a problem here. We're dumping sewage into the river that we're drinking out of, like maybe this isn't the best idea. And people are like, no, it's a river. It, it'll flow into the ocean. That's what happens. Duh. Until 1858, um, because it's a tidal river, there's something unique about the River Thames. It doesn't flow directly into the ocean. It's kind of a backwash of the ocean. And so in 1858, in the middle of summer, this unnaturally warm London summer caused the River Thames to start dropping. And as it continued to drop, what was revealed was decades of sewage and waste that had been sitting just underneath the surface of the water for decades. And as the water line kept dropping and that stuff began to dry out, all of a sudden the entire region began to smell Newspapers labeled it the Great Stink of 1858. Uh, There's a story of Queen Victoria at the time who was sailing down the river and encountered the Great Stench and ordered her servants to shove flowers into her face so that she could breathe, only a few minutes later to realize that the flowers could not stop the odor and ordered that the boat be docked, and she fled the scene because it was that powerfully strong. It was human waste and if the wind blew, it supposedly would make you sick if you just happened to catch it. And the reason I, I like that story that I recently came across is I feel like in some ways that kind of captures what I feel like watching the news is like right now. Isn't it? I mean, it's, I turn on the news or I look at the headlines, and in the last, just, it's just 2018, and we're only in March, and this is what 2018 feels like. Um, whether it's something tragic like a school shooting that we're still trying to kind of live in the wake of what in the world is going on around us, or whether it's the reality of kind of divisive politics or a Russian president who demonstrates his invincible weapon on a cheap graphic slideshow behind him that shows the missiles dropping on Florida, right? I mean, there's all these different subtleties that just, at the end of the day, it's kind of the great stink. It's not just in the news and the headlines. It's actually even in the hearts and the movie screens uh, there's been an increase of dystopian literature, literature and movies and television shows that focus on like the world not being okay, 
The generation that's growing up right now, uh, reports say that they uh, are the first generation in modern, modern American history to believe that the best days of America are behind them. Like that's the current kind of state of reality we find ourselves. Divisive politics, uh, overall just depression and anxiety on the rise. And so in the midst of 2018 being a year of better decisions and fewer regrets, I wanted to spend the month of March looking at the reality of where we are. Because none of us live in uh, some fake Disney world that we've constructed around us. We all live in reality. And how do we navigate reality? How, we deal, how do we deal with the anxieties and the uncertainties and the worries that come? How do we deal with our own great stink that we find ourselves in the midst of sometimes? And what I would encourage you to do is to engage in this message in a different way that by the end of the, this March, the end of March, I'll come back and I'm, I'm going to press in to just some really harder struggles. Um, I typically don't press into a lot of my personal struggles, but even in the end of March, I'm going to kind of walk through my journey through depression that I've been dealing with and just give you a little bit of a deeper insight. What if you're in the midst of something far more difficult and hard than you've ever experienced before? And so this series, like I said, each Sunday is going to deal with ever-increasing kind of frustrations, disappointments, stressors that you and I find in life. And what I want you to be able to walk out with each week is kind of have enough of a handle to, to have a tool to pull out to engage this culture and the pressures and the stressors that you sometimes find yourself in. And, um, and so just as a commercial, Jason and I are going to be tag-teaming this, this series throughout the month, and I really uh, think this is going to be helpful for, for all of us as we step into a world where oftentimes it feels like we're living in the great stink of 2018. Today I want to start with um, looking at a famous passage and giving you one simple practice. It's, it's not going to be a game changer. It's not going to shift the course of your life, but it is one genuine helpful practice that you and I can use when we find ourselves in the midst of everyday circumstances that are stressful, in the midst of everyday circumstances of worry and frustration and disappointment and fear. And this famous passage is one that perhaps you've read before. Even if you're not really familiar with faith or even church as a whole, this has probably been a passage that you've seen because it's one of those famous poems that you find in uh, the section of the Bible called the Old Testament. And here's my uh, caveat to you. Whether you're new to church, whether you're here for the first time, or whether you would call yourself an expert in Christianity, I want to encourage you to, to not allow the familiarity that you have with this passage to distract you from what this passage can, can give you. Because regardless of where you are, even in your spiritual journey and what you believe about faith, I believe that all of us can engage this passage and find at least one handle that can help us carry, some, carry hope into those areas of our lives where we're dealing with disappointment. This passage is called Psalm 23, and no doubt you've seen it or you've read it. And let me give you a little bit of backdrop before I press into it. Um, Psalm 23 is found in what's called the Book of Psalms. The book of Psalms would be the ancient Jewish equivalent of this screen here, right? As we have sung songs today, there have been words, 
right? And you may not necessarily be familiar with all the songs. At some point, you're like, did I come to a rock concert or to church, right? Because they're so gifted, and sometimes it just kind of overwhelms you. But this is essentially what the, the book of Psalms was. It's an ancient songbook. You could read along. And because Psalms were the, the poems and the songs of the ancient the Jewish people and the Jewish people today. And they're really powerful. It's an incredibly moving book. If you uh, have ever spent time just reading some of them, you would find that the book of Psalms runs the full gamut of emotions and situations and circumstances. There are psalms and songs for the top, and there are psalms and songs for the very bottom of life. And it's an incredibly emotionally enriching experience to work through the book of Psalms. And of all the Psalms, perhaps Psalm 23 is the most famous. It's written by a middle-aged man named David, who at the time was the king of Israel. He's also one of the most prolific songwriters in ancient Israel. And so many of the Psalms have has his name as the, the writer and contributor. He was a musician, a very gifted poet, and so oftentimes his writings made their way into what we now call the book of Psalms. And as a middle-aged man dealing with an issue in his life, he thinks back to the middle school days of his life to grab hold of an image that becomes the bedrock of this passage. He grabs the image of a shepherd because David, when he was a middle school boy, was a shepherd for his family's business. His father was a shepherd and like many families at that time, whatever your parents did, you did by default. And so as a young middle school boy, he contributed to the family business by being a shepherd. And this middle-aged man thinks back to his middle school days, and that moment, those moments, helped to serve as the frame for this famous passage. And I'll just read it to you, and then we'll press into it just a, a little bit. He starts off with, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul and he guides me along the right path for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beautiful words. Right? Really beautiful imagery. I, I love this song. But it's really easy when we read these to, to miss that this happens in the context of his, history. This, this thing that gets written by David has a moment that this thing is written around. You see, what David is doing in this middle-aged point of his life when he writes this, many scholars believe the context is a coup. See, David's the king of Israel. He's a great king of Israel, but he has a problem. He has some family issues inside of his household. He has some kids who don't exactly get along with each other and some kids who don't get along with the parents. I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but that's what he's going through. And so no matter where you are and what you're dealing with with your family, it's probably not as bad as what David's about to deal with. You see, one of his kids decides that he thinks he should be king, and he skillfully overthrows his father as the king of Israel. He charms himself, he raises up an army, and in one fell swoop comes in, 
and pushes David out and becomes the king of Israel. So maybe your teenager doesn't listen, but at least they're not plotting a coup on you. Hopefully not. Anyway, right? But this is what David's dealing with. He writes Psalm 23 in the aftermath of one of his sons overthrowing his throne, killing his friends, and causing him to live as an exile. The city that David loves, that the city that David built, he has to flee and run from it with only a small group of people while he's being pursued by his son and his son's army. He's in the midst of in a very emotionally damaging part of his life that we know from other historical accounts of this moment when he's dealing with Absalom's coup that he is an emotional roller coaster. He's devastated, as many of us would be if we found out that the person who stabbed us in the back was our own kid. Some of you have walked through difficult times and have had these conversations where in the aftermath of a parent's death, all of a sudden, money gets into the equation and this inheritance gets into the equation and all of a sudden you thought you knew your siblings and your cousins and it's just, it gets really dark fast and entire families have been devastated by the aftermath of these kind of moments. And this is David, he's living it out. He's not dead. He's living with the emotional weight of what's just transpired. And in the midst of that, David writes these words. Uh, last week, uh, well, actually, this past week, in the midst of traveling, I was watching a business uh, news channel, and uh, the, Federal, the new Federal Reserve Chair was speaking to a congressional committee and, and kind of being interviewed in the early kind of transitional phases, and they're kind of peppering with questions about banking, about his views of inflation, and while he's speaking, the news channel has a box, and there he is in his little box, and then right beside his box is the stock market ticker. And it's this real-time kind of thing. As he says certain things, the stock market ticker goes up. And as he says other things, the stock market ticker goes down. And it's this roller coaster ride in the midst of this interview with the new Federal Reserve chair. And it's up and it's down and it's up and it's down. And the commentators are commentating about what the stock market is doing. And over the last few weeks, there have been countless headlines written about the stock market that some very alarming kind of statements about the stock market and how it's Great Depression-type moments that we're seeing with stock market drops. This is kind of what's dominated some of the business headlines recently. And so this is why this is playing out on the television screen in front of me. And as I'm watching this play out, this passage of Scripture and this kind of message series we're getting ready to come in comes to mind. Because I realized that what I was watching on CNBC oftentimes is replicated in how we live our lives in the midst of difficult circumstances. The stock market tickers dropping 40 or 50, and oh my goodness, it's alarming. But if you were to take a zoom out and look at the 10-year trend line of the stock market, you go back to this time, 2009, just nine years ago, the stock market was 6,500. The stock market this week was 25,000. And so watching the ticker and the commentators and 
the, the headlines in this moment, you could feel this heightened sense of alarm and concern about inflation and the economy. And get me, I, I recognize those are valid concerns that people have. But in that moment, watching the stock market ticker go up and down and up and down and red and green and red and green can make you feel this emotional anxiety. But when you take a step back and you look at the nine-year trend line, all of a sudden you realize the stock market has quadrupled in value in the last nine years. See, a ticker tells you some truth, but a ticker doesn't tell you the whole truth. A trend line does. The conversation you've had with your teenager that makes you dig into what the laws are about shipping them off to some other place. Right? Or as a teenager, Googling, can you perform a coup in America today? Right? That those ticker moments, they feel heightened. They feel alarming. They feel like they're so demanding. You see the red. But when you take a step back and you look at the trend, sometimes it's not as bad as we believe it is or we feel it is. And the trend line gives you the whole truth where the ticker just gives you a snapshot. And it may not even be true. And, and I said that the stock market, this moment I'm watching on CNBC, the reason it jumps out at me is because when I look at Psalm 23, I think Psalm 23 is David's trend line moment. His ticker, what's going on on the side screen, is my son has just overthrown me. All is lost. The emotional roller coaster, the devastation, the anxiety, the fear, the uncertainty. But I was blown away because it just hit me. I was like, there's a Psalm 23. The actual writing of Psalm 23 is profound. When you consider what was going on around David, that in the midst of fleeing and running for his life, he sits down to pen these words about his life. And what does he write? He's, he writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He talks about green pastures and still waters. You see, when we focus on the trend line, I think what happens is it gives us a confidence, a confidence that you see David have in this passage. And so I want to just spend the next few minutes talking about how do you practically, how do you practically move from focusing on the ticker to seeing the trend line in life? In the midst of everyday circumstances, how do you take a step back and see beyond the power outages, see beyond the current financial struggles, see beyond the current marital struggles? How do you take a step back and see the trend, not just the ticker. And one is what we see David do in Psalm 23. He looks beyond his circumstances to see the big picture, doesn't he? You don't see him just talk. There's no mention of Absalom in this passage. No mention of losing his kingdom, losing his wealth, losing his security. What you see instead is him picturing green pastures and still waters. You see him having a bigger picture beyond the immediate circumstances, beyond the job loss, beyond the marital struggles, beyond the health problems, to see the big picture. And when he takes that bigger picture glance, he has a more balanced view of life. I love it. David sees the mountains and he sees the valleys. He sees the green pastures where things are good, and he sees the valley of the shadow of death. 
He sees it all. Not one, no one of those things dominates his headlines. It's his trend line overall. And what that does for us, when you're willing to take that step back and say, okay, this week has been really stressful. When you're willing to take a step back, what happens is it gives you a little bit of distance from your circumstances. And distance from your circumstances helps to kind of recenter and recalibrate you. It can be a really good release because in the moment, in those immediate circumstances, our emotions are heightened, our anxiety is present, our stress is there, the argument feels like the biggest argument ever, the, the moment with your kid feels like the biggest moment ever, the not sleeping because you have a baby feels like you will never sleep again. But when you take a step back, when you realize that, man, our house has been so sick recently, but you take a step back, what you find is it's just a life season. It's not a life sentence. It's just temporary. It's not permanent. It's a ticker. It's not the trend. And that can be really encouraging. Does it change your circumstances? No, but it helps to change you in the midst of your circumstances. When you're a middle schooler and you've just had your first breakup and you take a step back, and you say, do I know any of my middle school friends who are currently marrying the person that they are dating? Okay, I'm probably all right. Can I drive a car? No. All right, see below. Then don't worry about it. Right? I mean, like there's just certain things that like in the minute and in the moment, it feels so big. But when you take a step back, you, it's only a life season. I remember when Ella was a tiny little baby, and I thought I would never sleep again. It's like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life a zombie. And then out of nowhere, a blink and a pass, and I'm sleeping through the night again. And then I catch those moments where I would almost pay someone to make a time machine so I could go back and hold her and lose that sleep again. There's something about our tendency to get so fixated on the moment, we lose the big picture that's going on around us. And David helps to guide us through that. He helps to walk us through that, yes, you know what? You may have been laid off, but it's a life season. It's not a life sentence. Yeah, that relationship may have not ended up the way you wanted it to, but you know what? It's a life season. It's not a life sentence. You may not have gotten the best report from the doctor in this moment, but that doesn't mean it has to be a life sentence. He helps to recalibrate us. Even in the midst of my life, I've been doing this this week. I'm, I'm in the process of trying to finish up my doctorate, and I have very tight time frames, and so I pretty much eat, breathe, sleep, and prepare for this um, on Sundays, and am writing chapters for my doctorate. And there are times the mountain feels big, and I'm like, I can't do this. I don't have enough words in my brain to put on paper, and while it may look like it does flow easily because you see me up here on the stage and words just seem to come out of my mouth, it's actually not very easy for me. I'm an introvert by nature. I'm a really slow processor. I write about the speed of a snail, okay? Um, writing has always been a hard thing for me. I almost did not graduate high school, which I graduated with honors because of my inability to write. When I got into grad school, I'm just, I want you to understand. When I got into grad school, the first paper I ever turned in was eight pages of one paragraph. 
because my undergrad is biochem. We didn't have to write papers. And the professor sent me back a note, and this is like in a more of a liberal arts religious studies group, and he, he writes back, how did you graduate high school? <laughs> and I was dating my wife at the time, and she was like, you wrote an eight-page paragraph? I was like, isn't a paragraph like one single thought? I was like, my paper was one single thought. I mean, it just makes sense. I still don't get paragraphs. They're arbitrary. But I do them now. But writing is slow for me, and I've had to constantly pull myself into this thing of it's a life season, it's not a life sentence, it's a life season, it's not a life sentence. I'm just going to keep being faithful, I'm going to keep taking a step, I'm going to keep writing words, I'm going to keep making paragraphs, and I'll eventually get through it. And for many of us, that may be just the thing you grab hold of today to walk out of this room with, is that it's a life season, it's not a life sentence. But he does something else that I think is really helpful. He also recenters expectations. I love the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, or I lack nothing. But David, you want to kind of hit him on the shoulder and say, but David, um, you lack a throne. You lack a palace. You lack an empire. You remember that? But what David does by choosing the frame, so he's got this big picture that he's, Step back to look at. The frame of his big picture is around this idea of shepherd. And a shepherd has three specific responsibilities David would have been intimately aware of. So every shepherd has his chief, his like job description is to provide three things. Food, water, and shelter. That's the job description of a shepherd. Food, water, shelter. Food, water, shelter. Food, water, shelter. And when you read Psalm 23, what you find is that all three are present in this passage. David's taking a step back, and it's almost as if he's reminding himself, yes, I may lack a throne, but I really, honestly, I may want my throne back, but I lack nothing. I have food, I have water, I have shelter. And he, he reorients and he recenters his expectations around life. And he realizes and recognizes in the moment, like, okay, I've got everything I need. I might not have everything I want, but I have everything I need. And what that does is it changes the posture of your heart. He's like, I got it all. Everything I need for life, I have. And what happens is Psalm 23 does not feel like a man griping and complaining. It feels like a man who's full of gratitude, which is why there's a little bit of a disconnect when you read through it. And you're like, how does this speak to that circumstance. Well, the reason he's able to, to sound like this in the midst of the circumstances is because his expectations have been reset by the frame of realizing I have everything I need for life. And what that does is it fosters gratitude, not griping. Because he's like, okay, you know what? Life is not the way I want it to be right now. But I have everything I absolutely need. Because if you go without food or water for a couple of days, all of a sudden, some of those smaller things in life kind of fade away to the big things that you need for life. And this is what David's modeling for us. He writes Psalm 23. He looks beyond his circumstances, and he recenters his expectations, and he models for us this attitude of gratitude. And these are two simple things. 
But these are helpful things. These are handles to grab hold of in the midst of circumstances when you find yourself engaging with something that is disappointing, that is challenging. But there's a little bit more, and this is how I want to kind of close out our time. I want, I want to press in. You see, no matter where you are, no matter what you believe, no matter what you're going through, by looking beyond your circumstances and recentering expectations, you can gain confidence in the midst of chaos. You can grab hold of confidence in the midst of crisis. But David, ultimately, David writes Psalm 23 with an even greater confidence than what I'm conveying to you. And the reason why is because David doesn't just look beyond his circumstances. He looks above his circumstances. You see, David's confidence had a name, and it was personal. That's why David begins this passage. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Is that David is pointing us to the fact that his spiritual connection gave him access to strength. His spiritual connectivity to God gave him a conduit for strength and comfort in the midst of chaos. He had that access in the midst of all of these circumstances falling apart. And I want to just... One thing that doesn't maybe necessarily jump out to us as um, 21st century um, Americans, but would have screamed at someone as an ancient um, Israeli reading this book, is that up until this point in Jewish history and Jewish writing, when God was discussed... The word that was typically used was a plural possessive. He was our God. He's Israel's God. It's always this plural possessive. But then David writes Psalm 23, and he does something that's really radical. He writes, the Lord is my shepherd. He writes with this like very singular possessive word. He's mine. He's not ours. He's mine. He sees God not as some cosmic king to a nation, but he sees God as someone who cares deeply and intimately about him personally, who wants to hear from him. And that spiritual connection that David has allows him to, when he takes a step back, to see God's strength and presence in different ways. He's literally a God in 3D. At the beginning of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me. The the visual is of God is in front of him. And he's taking him somewhere. He's guiding him. He's kind of leading and modeling for him. But then he goes in verse 4 and he's like, even when I walk through the valley, the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death as it's translated in some other versions, He's no longer the God in front of him. He's the God who is with him, beside him. Who's present right here, even physically carrying him and supporting him. And then he ends Psalm 23. And surely, right, he's like, that. he's got this picture of being a table prepared in the presence of my enemies. He has an enemy when he writes this. He's like, I know one day. There will be a table where I will sit even in the presence of my enemies and that goodness and love will pursue me 
the rest of my days. Now God's behind him because things are so good in that season that God is just kind of his guard behind, protecting him from being surprised. That David's spiritual connection to God gave him an ability to understand that God's presence and God's supply and God's strength was different in all the different circumstances, but it was present in every circumstance. That in the midst of life being good and just kind of normal, there was a, a guiding that God had. There was a leading that God brought, and he could pray and expect God was ordering his steps. And in the midst of the valley of the shadow of the death, he, would, he could cry out to God and know that God was carrying him through the difficult moments. And that he may have not felt like he had a lot of strength to make it through this week, but he would cry out to God and he would find strength to take the next step. Maybe I can't run like I do at the beginning of Psalm 23, but I can still walk like I do in the middle. Because God gives me strength for each step I take. And then in the end, he has this positive overall kind of this belief at the core of who he is that the best days of his life are still in front of him. I mean, wouldn't you want to have that? I interact with a lot of people, and the thing that breaks my heart the most is the number of people I talk to who, who really sincerely don't believe the best days are still in front of him. And David, with his spiritual connection to God, has this overwhelming... It's not, it's not hype. It's not optimism. It's not positive thinking. It's a confidence that says, I have seen God guide me in my life beyond this immediate circumstance. I have watched God carry me through dark times in my life, and he has supplied every one of my needs. And so naturally, when I step back, what I see is my trend line is not down. I see a trend line. I see hope that says it, it can keep getting better. It's bigger. And the reason why is because David understood that it is not his circumstances that defined him. It is not his circumstances that are the prison he has to live inside of. That ultimately, his, God's character and a trust in God's character can give him strength in every single season of life. And that if you're in this room and you're a Christian and you're walking through the good, the bad, or the ugly, know that there is a supply that he holds out for you. There is a source a constant source of strength present for you that he offers and that any of us can participate in it. And as a pastor, I have walked into rooms where people have lost their loved ones. This passage stands out to me because I remember walking into a room with a woman who um, her husband and her, her ten, their 10-year-old daughter had been out on a hike and they slipped and they fell and the husband passes away as I'm walking into the room with them as I'm visiting them at the hospital and their 10-year-old daughter is being rushed in emergency surgery. And I sit down with her and I, I weep with her and I prayed this passage. And then two years later, bump into her again and she was like, thank you for that night and that moment. That's true. He has led me and he has carried me through every single season of life. 
And that this isn't just some, like, I, I hope this works out. This is a confidence David has. And it looks like trust. And sometimes that trust is, God, I just need you to help me to take the next step. And sometimes that trust is, God, guide me in this decision. We're trying to make a choice about this career path. Or, or God, help me in this season of parenting because I don't understand what to do with this very precious gift that you have given me. Because I need some wisdom and some advice. Or it may be in, a, in your marriage where you sit down with your significant other and you look them eye to eye and you're like, look, I'm not, I'm not a really good prayer. I don't even know if that's a thing. And if it is a thing, I would stink at it. But I know that I want us to work out really well. So could we just tonight, could we pray before we get in the bed and just say, God, help us to have a better marriage? God, help us to, not, help us to kind of work through our conflict that we have. That what it looks like is it's just taking one step towards him and trusting him. And that what you'll find is that as we begin to take a step back and as we be, begin to look beyond our circumstances and as we begin to reset our expectations and ultimately for some of us, if we're willing to put our trust in the spiritual connection that God has made for us through Jesus, then what we will find is that there will be strength and supply to navigate every single circumstance that we find ourselves in. Let's pray.